Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover, hunkered down in Minneapolis while it's 20 below zero outside. Thanks, Polar Vortex. This is episode 210 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I'm talking with Ben Balter of GitHub about GitHub and communicating in a remote workplace. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Gusto, and Case Text. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Stephanie forwarded me an interesting message from one of our lab members, Greg Siskind. Greg is an immigration lawyer, and recently he took on a client with a woman who was arrested during her immigration status interview. But the government was shut down, and she was five months pregnant, and her pregnancy was high risk, and he was trying to figure out how to get her out. So with the government shut down, he had limited options and he started a social media campaign. And apparently the ICE detention center received thousands of calls in one night. And so they decided to release her so that she could get the care she needed, which is a really interesting strategy for a lawyer to use. Instead of going through the legal channels, he used the crowd to pressure the immigration detention center to get his client out so she could get the help she need. Fantastic. Great job, Greg. Thanks for telling us about that because uh, really interesting. So loved hearing about it. And I think that came through one of our lab conversations as well, um, which is just one example of the cool conversations we're having in the lab. So just wanted to pass that along because it was kind of a neat story. You can learn more about Greg Siskind. I'll pop a link to his firm website in the show notes as well, but check that out. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Jake Heller from Case Text, and we'll dive right into my conversation with Ben Balter. Hey, I am Jake Heller. I am the CEO and co-founder of Case Text. Case Text is artificial intelligence assisted legal research that is cheaper and better than what you're using right now. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today, Jake. I'm happy to be here, man. So we wanted to talk about, speaking of AI and legal research and legal technology, how do you decide what to use? And you've got a collection of tips for our listeners. Yeah, and I think it's a really important question because especially now, there are over 704 different legal technology startups, Hmm. some which may be more helpful and some may not be so much. And I have been running Case Text for over six years and have been coding for my entire adult life. And so I have a few tips of how I choose products, especially as myself, a former lawyer also, how I choose products for my practice that might be helpful for listeners here. All right, go for it. So tip one is don't change for the sake of change. And this may sound like it's coming from a person who may want you to change for the sake of change because I'm, I'm trying to sell a legal tech product, but really <laughs> only change when you feel like you have a real and actual problem you have to solve. Because the truth is that picking a new technology takes time, it takes effort, um, you have to learn something new. So only change if and only if you have a real problem to solve. Yeah, that's a good one. Which brings me to my second tip, which is that only actually even try new technologies that purport to solve a real problem in your practice. You would be shocked by how many people I've talked to who buy new technology and then later realize it's not actually helping them solve a real problem in their practice, like you know helping you build better, getting more clients, practicing better. And they could have known that from the very start had they just checked out what the technology and company purports to solve rather than you know, diving into the coolest, newest thing. That becomes a distraction rather than a productivity boost. Exactly. 
My third tip, and I think this is the most important one, is really test out the customer and user experience before you buy. And I mean that in a few different ways. If they don't have a free trial for you to try the technology before you buy, then that's sometimes a flag that it's either too expensive and complex and they need you to talk to a salesperson before you even try it, or it's not user-friendly and they're trying to hide behind that. If they're not transparent with their price before you buy, then there might be something fishy there. Sometimes there's a good reason to not you know, promote the price super high, you know, because it's, it's, it's customizable or, or custom to your purposes. But most of the time, if they're not transparent with the price before you buy, it's because it's way too expensive. And I would really recommend starting a chat or email or phone call or however you prefer to get customer service from the company. Because as a general rule of thumb, however they treat you, you know, before you start using the product in terms of customer service, that is the most you can expect out of their customer service after you buy the product. And so, you know, use the free trial, start talking with customer service, et cetera, before you make a buying decision. And you'll have a really good sense for what that company is like and how it's like to deal with that company. Hmm, that's a good point. My final tip is to be open to trying new things. You know, if a company really passes the sniff test before, you know, you buy it, if they are transparent and open with their price, if you try the free trial and it's good, and if you aren't changing just for the sake of change, but because you have a real need you're solving for and they solve that problem, then go for it. There are a lot of folks out there, you know, many of whom are former lawyers who are starting companies because they want to make the practice of law better. And it could be that a new technology may actually solve a real problem that you have at your firm and can really put you in a better position. So you know, give it a proper test and including their customer service and support, really understand the pricing. And if everything checks out, be open to new ideas. That's awesome. Jake, though, what about startups? Like, how do you decide whether or not this startup is worth investing your time, your money, the cost of switching in versus a more established company that you're relatively confident will be around tomorrow? That's a great question. And CaseTex is, is in a lot of ways in startup mode ourselves. And so I think it's an important question to ask even for folks checking us out. And the truth is that there are a few ways you can figure out whether or not this is a company that's going to be around next year, right? Because if they're not going to be around next year, then, then why even bother, right? The first thing is look to see on their website if they have any customers. Mm -hmm. And if they have customers, they'll promote that and they'll say that very clearly. If they don't, say that they have customers and have testimonials, et cetera, that's maybe a negative signal. You're probably signing up to be a guinea pig. Exactly, exactly. And you don't necessarily want to be the first one ever to try to do something. <laughs> um, so the the second thing is also check, you know, Google the company name and look at websites like Crunchbase.com. Crunchbase is a comprehensive compendium of all venture capital financings that have ever happened for all startups. And it's a quick way you can figure out whether or not a startup has substantial venture capital backing. Because the deal is that either they're making money from customers or they've raised venture capital to finance their operations for the time being. But if they have neither venture capital nor making money for customers, it is only a matter of time until they go out of business. So those are going to be the two biggest places that I would look. Thanks, Jake. That's really helpful. And for the listeners, Case Text is offering a 14-day free trial and exclusively for our listeners, 15% off if you try it at casetext.com slash lawyerist. That's casetext.com slash lawyerist, and we'll include the link in the show notes. Jake, thanks so much. Happy to be here, Sam. Oh, 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 
Hi, my name is Ben Balter. I'm a senior manager of product management at GitHub, the world's largest software development network, where I oversee the platform's community and safety efforts for more than 100 million software projects. Our team handles everything from abuse and harassment to DMCA and GDPR and just about everything in between. Very cool. So you are a lawyer and a coder and have found yourself much more deeply embedded in the world of building software. Yeah, I'd like to say that I'm an attorney by profession, but a developer by passion. I found myself sitting in the back of law school and was more interested in learning open source and learning how to code than I was in whatever the lesson of that day was. Um, and so kind of found myself into a path of uh, primarily, you know, spending my day translating between lawyers and geeks, whether it's uh, compliance efforts or, you know, bringing technology towards the legal profession of kind of bridging that gap between the two. That ability to speak both law and geek is probably underrated and really underrepresented in the world, I think. Yeah, the way that I got my start in uh, in technology, it was uh, 2009 or so, uh, and the legal economy being what it was, it was really hard to find a job in traditional law. And a buddy of mine said to me, hey, you know, you do computer stuff, you can probably find a job <laughs> doing computer stuff. And it literally never occurred to me that I could take my passion and make a profession out of it. Um, and so I found a really great opportunity at the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, on their new media team, helping with compliance and regulatory efforts around a website redesign. Shocker, when it comes to technology and government, there's a lot of paperwork yeah. and a lot of red tape. Well, we were still able to do some really cool things, be the first agency to accept comments on a rulemaking via social media, do some really crazy things like using analytics on a website. Uh, it was some exciting times. I don't know how long I've been following you on Twitter, reading your blog, whatever. There's a post in particular that sparked my interest in having a podcast about communicating, um, especially with remote or distributed teams. And I want to get to that later. But first, you work for GitHub. And I think a lot of our listeners probably don't have any understanding of what it is or why it's one of the most important companies for the existence of the internet and the world and software in general. Um, maybe you could give us the layman's version of what is GitHub and what does it do? You could think of GitHub somewhat like Google Docs or Dropbox or track changes in Microsoft Word, but for software developers and for code. Uh, if you yourself are not a software developer, you might not have a reason to use GitHub on a regular basis, uh, but the vast majority of the technology you touch from day to day, be it the cell phone in your pocket to the car that you drive, the developers that wrote that software used GitHub to collaborate. It allows multiple developers to work on the same piece of code to be able to track who made what change when over time um, and to be able to track proposed features and, and their progress as they implement them. And my understanding is that Microsoft recently bought GitHub and at least one interpretation of why Microsoft bought it was that GitHub had become so essential to its own workflows at at least on some of its big open source projects, that it didn't want it to go away, and so it just bought it. Yeah, the, it's the, the vast majority of, of technology you touch, the, the biggest names in tech, they're all using GitHub both internally in terms of their own software projects, the kind of software that you buy mm -hmm. on a daily basis, um, but also using GitHub to publish software source code um, into the public, open source, so that other users in the community can collaborate. Um, and that's you know some major software projects from WordPress uh, to Wikipedia all kind of follow this model of, of working in the open open and working in public, which uh, encourages a certain workflow that, that GitHub really adopts and encourages. Yeah. In fact, if listeners want a kind of accessible preview of what GitHub is, uh, we keep our style guide on GitHub and you can get there by going to lawyerist.com slash style and you'll see what it looks like and how it you could you can dial it back and see what it has looked like over time and how it's changed. It's not written in code, but it's written in Markdown, which is very easy to read. And
and you'll get an idea for what GitHub is and how it functions. Now, our GitHub account is just me using GitHub. And so it's not a great representation, even on our code, of what GitHub can be done. But imagine you have 15 or 20 or 70 people working on a project, you need to be able to track changes, right? How do you reconcile the changes and figure out which ones you want to keep and which ones you want to reject? That's what GitHub does. So Ben, I have long wanted a GitHub for lawyers, <laughs> right? For legal documents so that we can keep track of our firm's templates and things over time. What makes, I mean, I think you've tried something like that. What makes it hard and why is that not a thing that we have in the world yet? Yeah, o over the years, I've, I've tried a number of, of what I'd call hacky kind of bubblegum and duct tape type solutions to try <laughs> to bring, uh, you know, more open source style workflows, asynchronous distributed workflows um, to, to, you know, more traditional professions, including the legal profession. I made a tool that if you give it a Word document, it can convert it to Markdown, that kind of simplified text format that you described earlier, um, can do the same thing in reverse. Uh, one of the features that GitHub does that's really powerful um, is when you make changes to a file, similar to track changes in Microsoft Word, it can show you who made what change when in a very granular right. way um, and lets people comment on and discuss those proposed changes. So it's trying to find different ways, either be it a form that open, that goes into GitHub workflow to make it the interface a little bit more simplified for non-developers um, or trying to kind of bridge different formats. But the thing that I keep coming back to and I keep discovering is that the technology is the easy part, right? It's not a matter of can we track who made what change? Can we discuss this proposed change? That type of technology has existed in various different forms uh, for, you know, for, for many years. It's right. um, baked into a lot of, you know, every word processor today. The hard part is the culture that goes around it and the social norms that go around it um, that really enable those types of workflows and let those tools really shine. Yeah. it's And maybe fundamentally, you'll get me to stop using Microsoft Word when you pull it from my cold, dead keyboard. <laughs> I mean, like, I think it's so, there are still lawyers out there using WordPerfect just because they don't want to change, even though it hasn't been predominant for, what, 15, 20 years. I feel like one of the hardest things is getting lawyers to do anything other than opening and saving documents in their familiar word processor. A, a lot of it is just a comfort factor, right? You mentioned Markdown. Uh, Markdown is, is incredibly easy in terms of imagine if you just had just a, a text editor, just a, a text field, you can't enter any formatting. It's the type of formatting that you would do just using a keyboard. So bullets are stars. You can use numbering just like you can, you know, normally. Um, but that just kind of a lot of uh, especially lawyers or, or more, you know, technical knowledge workers, but not, you know, engineers, they, they, they see that and they think it's a programming language. They think that it's just, it's a very right. intimidating barrier to entry. So a lot of it is just exposing in lightweight ways. Um, one of my, my favorite things, um, when I talk to companies that are looking to get started with open source or more kind of, um, asynchronous workflows is to find something that doesn't matter if you screw it up, if it's your favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe or coffee shops or sandwich shops near your office to begin collaborating, um, using Markdown on those types of things that if you make a mistake and you make a typo, um, it's not business critical. It's not something that's going to, your coworker is going to make fun of you about, and it point. gives yeah. you kind of a sandbox to start heading down those paths towards those workflows. So I imagine the legal team at GitHub is probably one of the more tech savvy legal teams. Have you had any luck getting them to convert to any of your, your systems? One of the really cool things that I like about GitHub is we use GitHub to build GitHub. And when I yeah. say that, I don't just mean the engineers and the designers and the product team. I mean, everyone. So our legal team, 
team, our accounting team, um, our HR team. If I want have a question about one of our HR policies, I'll open up an issue in the HR project, HR repository. Um, and if they're making a change to one of our HR policies, they'll do it in a way um, that's through a pull request so people can see how the policy has evolved over time. And legal is the exact same way. Huh. If our sales team, for example, uh, wants a, a deal reviewed or you know a contract uh, needs to be negotiated, they'll open up an issue just like you might open up a, a bug, file a bug report or a feature request against an open source project. They'll track that using a, a project board so they can see kind of how that evolves over its lifetime. And then all our internal documentation lives in, in a project that anyone can have access to. Um, and you can see kind of how that evolves over time. One of my favorite stories from when I, I first joined the company, it was one of my first couple days, one of the folks on the sales team needed a non-disclosure agreement um, to enter into a relationship with uh, with a customer. They opened up an issue against the legal repo asking for the what non-disclosure agreement they should um, use. And before the legal team was able to even get to their request and respond, somebody else was able to come along because they saw that issue opened up in the public, was able to say, hey, I actually asked for an NDA last week and I got it. Here's the one they put in me to, was able to give them the link and was actually able to close out and resolve the issue without the legal department's intervention, which I thought was really cool for a first kind of week eye-opener. That is cool. GitHub comes up a lot in the world of open source, obviously, but there's a lot more going on there. Maybe maybe we could talk about just briefly the difference between like public code and open source code and why these things matter. And because GitHub, you know, our, our lawyerist code for our website is public. You can go and look at everything that has been built into our website on GitHub. It isn't my intention that it's also available for anybody to just do whatever they want with. So talk about the difference between like licensing and public and private and open source and all that stuff. Open source code, as I said, is just code that is out there for anyone in the public to see, to make changes to, and to hopefully improve. You can think of it kind of like Wikipedia, where it's it's you know community collaborated that anyone can go in and make changes to the articles. And just like you look at the story of uh, Wikipedia versus Encyclopedia Britannica, we see that when you kind of trust the crowd or open up barriers to collaboration, that you end up getting better work products. Uh, but in order, the open source community, it's a distributed community, right? People are rarely in the same place at the same time, working on the same thing at the same time. Uh, and that causes certain workflows uh, and, and certain working styles and certain social norms to, to naturally evolve. Um, specifically, it's very asynchronous. Um, and I mean by yeah, that- you keep using that word. So maybe we should, you should explain it. Yeah. What I mean by asynchronous is not requiring two people to be in the same place at the same time to work on the same thing. It's not having that standing Monday morning 9 a.m. meeting, um, because if you're WordPress or Drupal or Ruby on Rails, there is no 9 a.m. because you're across, you know, 10, 12 different time zones um, all over the world. So somebody might be sleeping at 9 a.m. So the idea is you, you find things um, somewhat like email uh, where you can kind of, you know, post a message someplace, again, regardless of what the technology is, that you can post a message someplace and then somebody else can work on it um, on their own time span and, and in their own time zone. Email is kind of a good example of this, right? Because I send you an email and then you respond whenever you want to. And together we're in theory communicating about the same subject in doing that. Although I'll tell you what, we need to take a break for here from our sponsors. And then I want to dive into thinking about communication more deeply so that we're not interrupting ourselves in the middle. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back and we'll dive in. Legal research is too expensive, hard to use and time consuming. It doesn't have to be. With Case Text, you can save $2,000 and 210 hours on legal research this year. Case Text has unique artificial intelligence technology that does a lot of the research for you. 
Just drag and drop a complaint or brief and you'll quickly find cases on the same facts, legal issues, and jurisdiction. Case Text is fast, well-designed, and comprehensive, and it's very affordable. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get Case Text for $55 a month. Case Text is modern legal research trusted by over 3,000 small firms and 40 firms in the AmLaw 200. Go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to get started. If you have a small business or know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear a lot of hats, and some of those hats are totally great. But some, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, are not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old-school, clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work. But Gusto is, so let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash lawyerist. That's gusto.com slash lawyerist. In business, reputation is everything. And while online reviews can make or break you, your best clients probably aren't showing up. And that's too bad, because if they did, you'd have more clients, more referrals, and be the top-rated law firm in your area. If you're tired of waiting for reviews to trickle in, you have a choice. Either keep waiting or get proactive with Podium. Podium helps you get more reviews on the sites that matter most. Use their messaging platform to give friendly reminders while sending clients straight to the review sites that you care about the most. With Podium's built-in analytics, you can set goals, monitor progress, and incentivize your team to reach out to more clients. Become the number one choice online. Visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you start. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Okay, we're back. So Ben, we briefly started talking about asynchronous and what it is. Maybe we should preview this by saying, I mean, I, I guess you've been talking about what the open source world of software development looks like. You've got different people potentially all over the world communicating. And so how does that affect communication styles? What needs to happen there? So when you don't require people to be in the same place at the same time, right, you get more people into the conversation, you naturally tend to open up those conversations. You start recording them in places that naturally capture an exposed process. It could be a Facebook comment, it could be a message forum, um, but it's the difference between everyone getting into a, a conference room with leather chairs and wood paneling, having a discussion, and then maybe it exist kind of on notes in someone's desk and in, in, in a notebook or something like that. Um, but getting to using tools that that kind of capture who made what decision, when and why, um, and that expose that out for others to, to join. Because open source is very fluid. People are constantly opening or joining and, and leaving projects. And so it forces you to really lower the onboarding process um, so that people can can move from team to team or move from project to project. And I think what, what we're really seeing, especially from in the software industry, is that even closed source companies, companies that are working behind their firewall on proprietary products, are starting to realize that that type of workflow is the modern way that people are beginning to make software and are bringing to use that for their own proprietary software development in a process we called intersourcing. You take those norms and those best practices and those restrictions and you use them for closed source software. I suppose one of the advantages that even in a small team, let's say everyone in your is sitting in your office together, an advantage that it has is it lets people block off their time for focus, right? Like I might not want to just jump up and respond to every question that someone in my office office has, I may want to put my headphones on and really do some deep work on a case or on a piece of uh, writing that I'm focused on or on a negotiation or, or legal research. 
And I may not want to respond the moment you ping me with a question. I may want to respond later. That's still asynchronous communication. And the advantage is that you can prioritize your time. Yeah, in addition to the, the product allowing for remote workflows, GitHub itself is actually a primarily remote workforce. About two-thirds of the company works remotely. Um, and what that means in practice is no one has ever tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I got a question. Do, do you mind? Do you have a second? One of my favorite comics is uh, about what it means to interrupt a developer, or I think you can expand it more broadly to a knowledge worker in that if you're working on a motion or a brief or uh, trying to track down a particularly tricky bug, you build up all this knowledge in your head and it keeps building and building and building and you have all this kind of um, information in your mental RAM. Mm -hmm. And then when somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, do you have a second? All that comes crashing down. And the idea behind this is time is not fungible, right? Four 30 minute increments of time are not the same as one two hour block of time. You can really get into something and get into the flow. Um, And I think that's one of the big advantages of remote workflows of being able to kind of manage your own time and really get deep into a problem as lawyers and other knowledge workers often have to do. How does a tool like Slack fit into this? Because Slack is not asynchronous and it sort of encourages people to be paying attention to it all the time. Do you, I guess, do you, do you use Slack at GitHub or how do you think about sort of real-time chat as fitting into this prefer asynchronous thing? Yeah, we use Slack at GitHub, um, but it, we actually think of it more of an asynchronous medium. It's slightly more synchronous, but it's mm. kind of still asynchronous. And again, that comes back to the cultural norm you put about around it. If your company's cultural norm is that if you send someone a direct message or you mention them in a channel, if they don't, re- if they appear to be online and they don't respond within a couple seconds, that that's rude, that they're ignoring you. At GitHub, we really have created a culture where chat is asynchronous. In that, um, you might, you know, if someone, if it takes half an hour, an hour for someone to get back to you, that's within acceptability, that's that's within the norm, that you you assume that they're working on something and you kind of let them manage their, their time accordingly and they, they will get back to you. Um, the other advantage of that also is, is because you're dropping it into a, a, a chat room rather than going directly to that particular person, um, you have the opportunity to talk more to the, the team as a whole mm-hmm. and someone else may be able to get back to you before that person Somebody that else looking to solve to talk the problem to. in the meantime, yeah. Exactly. How, how do you think then about dropping into a video chat or a phone call or some like when when are those appropriate and when is a meeting among multiple people appropriate? I li- yeah, I like to think of it kind of a continuum of high fidelity and low fidelity mediums, right? So something might slack or an issue or an email might be a little bit lower fidelity medium because you, you lose a lot in that communication. Um, but high fidelity mediums, uh, real time communication like video chat um, really have their, their, their special special purpose. They should not be where you convey information, right? Where you have a meeting and you say, this is the decision we made and you just let everyone know. Mm. Here's our sales mm. numbers. Here's our, our new customer that or new client that we got. Um, you can convey information through asynchronous mediums, whether it's some sort of an internal blog, a email. you want a record to- of it. Yeah, and yeah. email to the entire company because um, then people can kind of get that information on their, their own time and you're not interrupting if someone needs that that uninterrupted block of time. Um, so then you'd use video chat and those kind of high fidelity mediums for themes like brainstorming, getting together with a coworker to bounce off ideas or talk through a particularly sticky problem for sensitive feedback, whether it's an interpersonal issue or performance or whatever that might be, where you want to be able to hear the tone in the other person's voice and, and see their face and um, really connect on a human and a personal level. 
Um, and last, I'd say, you know, for small talk and gossip, when you're a remote <laughs> company, you don't you don't have that water cooler. I don't even know where the water cooler is. We do. Um, uh, we do. We used to do Taco Thursdays uh, where everybody had lunch together on video. And now we do coffee on Thursday mornings where we can all just sit and chat. Yeah, we have uh, on my team, we have th- something we call Coffee Talk, um, yeah. where uh, once a week on, on Mondays, we have an hour just to talk about our weekend. Um, you know, if kids played t-ball or whatever it might be. <laughs> It's a funny thing that the dog did um, just to get to know people on a, on a human level um, and also things that you don't really want a record of, of, of kind of the kind of gossip that or, you know, internal politics that sometimes are necessary to, to get things working within a company, within a team. So I assume that sometimes you also have meetings in order to make decisions, but then that decision has to be recorded somewhere as well so that it, it can be available to other people. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you're going to be preferring uh, systems that are going to naturally capture an exposed process. So Slack's a great example of that. If, you know, two Coworkers are talking through a problem. Um, that chat log is available, and anyone can kind of search for and find that within within the team, within the company. But if you do have an in-person meeting, to make sure to take that extra affirmative step to memorialize that in whatever your system is, so that it is discoverable um, and it is captured and it is it is available for others that weren't. It's not that kind of you needed to be there problem. Uh, one of your tips is nobody gets fired for opening an issue, which that's very GitHub speaky. I think I think that's more about like raise every problem because you know if they're just in your head nobody else knows might know that they're even a problem. Yeah, it's it's kind of the uh, if you see something say something of corporate culture <laughs> right? without that, the creepiness. <laughs> ex- exactly. Um, you know, lots of times you see something, you, you maybe you're new, you're oh, that doesn't seem quite quite right. Um, but especially with new employees or people recently onboarding to a particular project or a particular team, that new fresh set of eyes can really bring a new perspective, and it never hurts to at least start the conversation. Worst case scenario, you get yeah, we thought about that, but we're not going in that direction, and they your coworkers appreciate the the thoughtfulness and you concerned that you showed for the project. How do you think about organizing teams? You, you talk about copying teams, not team members, which I think is also about sort of exposing uh, the, dis- the discussion, the, the communication, the decision making. But how do you think about putting those teams together as well so that we you can copy a team and not waste everyone else's time? In software engineering, we have a metric that we jokingly, somewhat jokingly call the bus factor. Um, that is, if a developer um, terribly gets hit by a bus, you know, how many developers need to get hit by a bus before the project <laughs> fails? Um, okay. I like to think of it a little bit more positively of the like lottery factor. You know, if if someone wins the lottery and we never hear from them again because they don't come into work on Monday, how many people can we lose on this project before the project fails? Um, and so if you're... And does the team need to be one more than that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so if, you know, you think about knowledge workers, we have a lot of institutional knowledge. Sometimes it's stored in our head. Sometimes it's stored in files on someone's desktop or emails in their personal, you know, their individual mm-hmm. email. Um, and so as much as possible, you want to be putting squads or teams together um, to tackle projects so that if, you know, people do silly things like they get sick or they, they have smaller humans that need their time. Um, and so to be or, able to kind or of five snow days in a row, like <laughs> we're having now, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. And so to, to be able to account for that and give people flexibility, they don't have to get stressed out about that, is that whenever possible, you want to be sending questions or ideas or, or any sort of communication to a team as a whole of at least, you know, two people. So you kind of have that redundancy that if something happens to one person, if they're out, if they're sick, if they're, you know, at the doctor's office, um, that someone can still get back to you asynchronously without having to wait gotcha. again for that person to be in a specific place at a certain time. And I think noise probably factors into this too. You say to be mindful of noise, and this is the sort of epidemic among larger companies where 
there are a hundred people, you know, CC'd on a reply all email and 99 of them don't need to be reading it. And, and the other hundred that reply, please remove me from this. Don't reply all. So there's an advantage to making some members of a team have some awareness of what's going on, but you also want to confine that so that you're not creating a bunch of noise for everybody else. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a lawyer, so I'm terrible at math, but using some rough <laughs> napkin math, if let's say, you know, it takes 20 seconds to read a reply to, you know, see that you got an email, open up your email client, read the reply to the email and hit archive. Um, if 50 people are on that email list serve, that's 15 minutes of your team's time that you just wasted that right. could have been better spent on something else. And it only looks like 20 seconds for each individual. And it probably took that individual three seconds to, to fire off the email. Um, but just as you're sending communication to be very mindful of that communication. So if you adopt more open source, asynchronous distributed workflows, that naturally means that communication is going to be more open. You'll have access to more discussions and more information. Um, but that also means that it comes with some personal responsibility to avoid drive-by opinions that you're just, you see something and we call it bike shedding in software development, that you see something and you have an opinion on it, but maybe you might not really have something that to add specifically, or you might not be the most qualified to offer that opinion. It might be outside your area of expertise, even though you might have an opinion on it. Um, and the other side of that is always to provide context, to never assume that the people, the receiving end of that communication has all the context that you have. So if you can link them out to other discussions or take the 30 seconds to write that extra sentence to explain what's going on um, so that when they get that notification on their phone, they just kind of see that little, the little, you know, one or two line snippet that they understand what's going on without having to dig in deeper. And I'm skipping around on your post a little bit, but obviously we'll link it for people. Um, what is the gentle bump? So in once if you have kind of some sort of tracker of, you know, whether it's a, a bulletin board, a Facebook post, an internal blog with comments on it, if you have things that or even if you're using an, an email listserv, people are busy, right? Things get missed. They go on vacation and they have too much email when they come back. Um, so the idea is to be able to follow up with people. Um, you know, you see this in, you know, the, the industry in terms of like, hey, just just bumping this to the top of your inbox, um, which I think is a little obnoxious in that I should be able to control my inbox, not the, the the sender of information, um, but still is sometimes and sometimes necessary. So don't be obnoxious about it. Try to be sensitive of the, the needs of the other person, but also know that sometimes if you don't hear back, um, that might be your answer in and of itself, right? No news might not be good news in and of itself. Um, yeah. And also kind of the, the flip side of that is oftentimes if it's an area of responsibility that kind of is in, in flux and people don't seem to be um, responsive to requests for that particular problem, um, you might be able to give yourself a promotion and just kind of go ahead and, and do it. We have a strong philosophy uh, at GitHub is kind of, you know, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, or at least I do, um, <laughs> and, and to, to be able to embody that as much as possible, obviously within reason and within within using good judgment. You know, we, we've also, though, had to say, to make it explicit, that silence is not consent, which is not a rape thing. It's, uh, it, <laughs> it's, a, it's just a, a workflow thing. If somebody hasn't said yes or no to something, it might mean that it hasn't hit their radar yet. You didn't make them aware of it in an appropriate way. You didn't communicate it effectively somehow, or that just slipped off their radar. It's probably best to give a gentle bump and make sure before you go forward with something, you know, that can be problematic that things just sit there while you're waiting for somebody else to respond. But sometimes you can do more harm than good by proceeding without an explicit yes, I think. Yeah. Yeah, before you say, hey, it looks like no one else is interested in this, I'm going to go ahead and run with this, you have to make sure that any potential party that might need to be informed or might maybe be able to consent to the proposed action um, knows that you're going to take it on and has at least an opportunity to weigh in, even if you know, their priorities are elsewhere at the moment. <laughs> 
<laughs> what do you mean by don't ping, just ask? Oh, so th this is this is one of my, my pet peeves. If you start moving towards um, Slack, again, and this is the idea that it's not a technology problem. It's a it's the challenge really lies in norms and social norms and, and kind of constraints is that uh, you know, let's say you move over to Slack and your company primarily uses Slack. If you were before that, if you had a question for a coworker, you'd walk over their desk and say, you know, Hey Susan, do you have a minute? I have a question. Right. And then you wait for them to respond. And then you start your conversation with Slack. There's, you can do that, right? You can go into a channel and say, Hey, I have a question. Can anyone answer a question for me? And then you wait for them to respond. Um, but with Slack, if you think about it a little bit more asynchronously, that's not necessary, right? It would be like you walking over to Susan's desk at 3 AM and she's not there and you say, Hey Susan, do you have a second? And, and you're just waiting for her to come in at 9 AM. Mm -hmm. And so the idea there is if you go into a, if you message someone, if you go into a chat room, um, don't ask and, and say, Hey, can I ask a question? Just to go ahead and ask the question itself. Um, hopefully someone can, can jump in <laughs> and respond, uh, gotcha. and, and get back, get back to your answer sooner. One of the most significant things on your rules for communication that I try to remind myself of over and over again, and I think we've actually incorporated it into our own um, onboarding processes and our guidelines for communication is your bonus that you threw in, which is overcompensate for tone. And I find this over and over again. I tend to be someone who is curt. I am overly brief. I use periods, not exclamation points. I tend not to throw in a lot of emoji. And so in text, I tend to come across sometimes as a bit of an asshole. And I try to keep this tip in mind a lot because I think we've learned over the years that text is, it almost has like a passive aggressiveness built into it or something like that. Yeah, I mean, text is a very low fidelity medium, right? You can't see someone's facial expression. You can't hear yeah. their tone. Uh, it's imagine if you and I had to communicate through Siri or something like that, where all you have is this robotic voice. And so in, in GitHub, we have this, and you know, the internet in general, I think, has really naturally evolved to have a very uh, whimsical culture, you can call it, in terms of lots of animated GIFs or, or GIFs, if, if you prefer, um, and, and lots of emoji. Um, are you, and the are reason, you on Team GIF? I'm, I'm, I'm a GIF, right? Oh, it's, my it's God. The, <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Go. It's carry the, the on. founder of of the standard said it's Jim. I don't think he gets to decide how language works. <laughs> I have a, a coworker that likes to say it's not the Giraffics Entertain format. Exactly. But, uh, but you, use, right. you use a lot of gifs. You use a lot of emoji, and that's not just for fun. Uh, I like to say that you know communication on the internet in kind of professional context should be professional but not formal, right? So if you get a communication from someone, uh, if it's a pull request on GitHub or an email from a coworker, you don't say. Dear sir or madam, I'm in receipt of your, you know, email dated 27 October 2018. Oh, some people do. <laughs> among at least among coworkers, you don't need to do that. You still can keep yeah. it professional while being informal. Uh, and you use gifs, you use emoji, you use exclamation points or or jokes or, or whatever you can to really try to con convey your tone using non-visual means, or at least you know they can't see your facial expressions your, or your um, tone of voice, and try to get as much as that possible into the email, into the chat, into the issue. Um, um, so that you can kind of create those those human connections and make sure that your message you're intending to send is actually what's received. Yeah, I feel like it's um, it feels like a silly thing to say, but it, it's really important and bears repeating again and again, which is like, remember that there's a person that you care about on the other end of this communication. I mean, you may not care a lot about them, but if you're on a small team, you probably do care a lot about them. And like, you know, take a moment to think about how will your message be received? And I find that in longer, the longer a thread goes, the the sort of 
more curt it gets <laughs> because you're like, no, 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 I'm trying to, and there's a point at which I've thought about even just making a bot that automatically pops in after say 20 replies to a Slack thread that is, hey, maybe you should take this conversation to video because that's a pretty good chance it's gotten heated at that point or it's starting to feel that way to somebody in the communication. And so overcompensate for tone is something I repeat in my head again and again and still haven't gotten the hang of. But And, and that's another case for that regular cadence of high fidelity mediums yeah. of using video chat just to get to know each other as humans and kind of getting to fill in the gaps when there is ambiguity so that if a coworker ends a sentence with a heart emoji, you know, they're not trying to be inappropriate. They're saying thank you. And you can fill that in because you, you know them as a human being and not just as a, a wall of text. There's kind of this trend right now about manager readmes where you instruct people how to think about you as a manager, which seems well-intentioned, but like, I don't get to say, imagine that I'm always writing my emails to you with a smile. And then it's your fault if you misinterpret something as mean going forward, you, right? Like it's still my job to overcompensate for tone at all times. Yeah, that, that's why my, my uh, avatar is just a smiley face all the time. So people don't get confused. <laughs> there you go. Although I think your uh, your avatar hasn't changed uh, in, in a long time. So I'm, I'm wondering how different you look, might look today. <laughs> One thing that came up briefly, you were talking about knowledge on teams and how a lot of that is stuck in people's heads and how many would get hit by a bus. I'm curious, how do you think about knowledge management and procedures manuals versus project workflows or to do board, you know, agile boards or whatever? How do you make sure that you're storing information and making it accessible and useful for people? You're all about documenting the process and every step along the way. But that puts a huge onus on each individual person to stay up to date on everything that's been going on and everything that we know about a project or the company or whatever. Yeah. So I, I got my start at GitHub um, helping government agencies take their first or second step into the world of open source. And through that, talking to a, a lot of lawyers, a lot of traditional management types, and they started using words like institutional knowledge and knowledge, knowledge sharing and knowledge capture. Um, and those weren't words that we were using at GitHub at the time or things that we thought about. Um, and the reason for that is we tried to only use systems systems that, that do that for us. So we don't think about it. There's not that additional step of memorializing the meeting and putting it in a wiki or putting it someplace where other people can find it on a, on a shared drive or in Dropbox or whatever that mm -hmm. might be. Um, and so for as much as possible, trying to, to find systems that, that capture that process for you. So you're not thinking about knowledge work or knowledge capture. It's just kind of happening. And it's, there still, you know, needs to be some pruning and some categorizing. Um, but as long as every kind of decision that you make has a URL in some form, form, be it a chat transcript or wiki or some sort of a mechanism like a bulletin board, um, as long as everything has a URL, you can you then solve for shareability and discoverability and, and onboarding. One of the things that I thought was really cool when I joined GitHub, this was a number of years ago now, is onboarding was not, you know, here's this, you know, leather bound packet with a bunch of papers in it, but actually here's just a bunch of URLs and just read these URLs and they're not materials that were purposely created for the sake of onboarding. Some of them were, but the vast majority of them were, here's a video of a talk that the founder gave about why we think about X, or here's hmm. a link to a discussion about how we made this decision. So you can understand how we make decisions and why that particular decision was made. And you're looking at, you know, the primary source materials, as a historian might say, of the kind of the history of the organization. And they weren't kind of something that were created after the fact, just for the sake of, of sharing knowledge. But it's definitely, it's definitely a, a challenge, right? When you have access to all this knowledge, to being able to keep up with everything that's going on um, and kind of prune your own notification and doing your own attention management. The, the best advice that I have there is make sure that everything is opt-in and that if an uh, individual wants to opt into additional context, they can. What about really procedural stuff like when you are finalizing a contract, 
here are the 75 things that you need to check off? Like, where does that checklist and, and all of the how to do the each step things live? I mean, it's going to be different for, for, for everyone, depending on what technology they use, whether it's Dropbox or a shared drive or GitHub or something else. Um, but the important thing is that it is captured someplace that's discoverable, that everyone knows kind of how to go down that path to find that thing or to find where they can find that thing. And then within that thing, that if it says, okay, you must do the procedure to print it out, that there's a link to the next document that they need of mm. how to print it out or the next thing that they need. So the, the, the joke that I like to say is that if if you liked it, you should have put a URL on it or more practically, um, <laughs> everything should have a URL. Um, and, that's, and it is that's because the, every, every change, every commit, every issue, every, everything in GitHub has a URL that you can link to in the same way that every section of every Google doc or even a Microsoft word document, you can actually link to all of those things. Yeah. And technically it doesn't have to be a URL. It could say, you know, here's the path on the share drive. We right. can find that information. Um, but it's the idea is that if I am in a document and I see a concept or a project or a thing that I don't know about that without having to go to a person and, you know, Oh, you know, who, who knows about this? Oh, I think Bob worked on that, but Bob's out sick today. Um, or he's not here anymore that to be able to kind of self opt into additional context and kind of go down the rabbit hole and go deeper to see more and more if I, if I so choose and make that opt in rather than opt out. And I suppose backing, backing up a few steps, like worst case scenario, somebody opens an issue saying, you know, we missed a couple of steps. How can we make sure that doesn't happen again? And then you dive back in and try and fix that process so that everything is linked together. Right. The, the alternative approach would be, you know, every time a new process comes up to send an email to everyone in the organization and say, here's the new process, rather than doing that, make it in some sort of way that when you go to that process, if you want to see what's changed, there's some sort of a change log. You can see how that's changed over time and see why those decisions were made. I interrupted you before our break. I had asked you to talk a little bit about um, what open source is and why it's important and sort of the different flavors of free public open source and things like that. Can I let you go back to that and kind of end on um, your pitch for what open source is and why it matters? Yeah, of, of course. I'm always glad to geek out about open source. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, so I mentioned open source software is software that's published, that's open to the world, that anyone can can view the underlying um, human readable source code that makes the machine do what you want it to do, can make changes to that source code, and hopefully contribute back. The legal thread in there that I left out is open source is all based on licensing, right? Um, using copyright in order to make something more shareable or make it make sure that other people can can use it in their own workflows or or for their own uses. And so there's this huge legal economy of around open source. Um, luckily, it's the, the industry is standardized on about three to a dozen or so um, open source licenses, which are intellectual property grants, so they're contracts, um, between a open source maintainer or an open source developer and a downstream open source user that mm -hmm. really makes the system possible, right? Without, without that um, open source license, it's not really open source code. It's just kind of published software or source disclosed code. But that license allows developers all over the world to take a project to to put their own kind of flavors to mix and match it just like you see in the music industry um, and to then ultimately make that software better i guess and what i'd love to see in the legal industry is some version of open source legal documents and maybe even more maybe even open source processes and systems and things because 
I mean, imagine how great it would be if we all weren't creating a billion different versions of every single thing we submit to courts or everything we negotiate or um, every estate plan. And instead, we're focused on the other stuff, the advice, the client service, and how much easier it would be for regular people to get things done in the legal system if there were an open set of documents that we all worked from. That's my dream anyway. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, we like to say in open source that all the easy problems have already been solved, yeah. right? It's not a question of can you connect to the database or can you build a blog, right? You, that's not the problem that a developer should be spending their time on. They should be working on higher value problems that haven't yet been solved, with, you know, whether it's specific to your implementation or a new novel problem. And I think that translates to the legal industry as well as, you know, an NDA has been solved. Um, uh, you know, the boilerplate clauses of a contract are a solved problem. And so in some certain, and that's not the competitive advantage, right? Your competitive advantage isn't your ability to, to customize a template. It's the human, you know, non, um, you know, unique to you advice that you can provide an understanding of your client's situation. So there's been some effort to kind of bring that open source philosophy or that mix and match philosophy into the legal profession. I know um, a number of years ago now, Automatic, the folks behind yep. WordPress, they put their terms of service, they released it under a Creative Commons license so that if you're another startup and you need a terms of service, you can take theirs as a starting point um, and use it without any concern. Um, and even in the context of GitHub, we've taken some of our documentation and our policies and put them out on, published them on GitHub. So not only can you see when a policy changes, you can see exactly what that change was, um, but also licensed it so that if you need a, a certain policy or a certain type of legal document, um, and it's one of those ones that have been published, you can, you can freely take it, adapt it to your own needs. And hopefully if you find a typo or a clause that can be written a little bit more clearly that you then can contribute that suggested changes back. And then we all benefit from, you know, being able to focus on those higher value issues. Yeah. I mean, that's the big mind shift, isn't it? That um, imagine if every company had to reinvent email before it could communicate electronically with its employees, like email is open source. Nobody has to invent it ever again. We'll keep developing it, but we're good there. Imagine if when you started your law practice, instead of spending all of your time drafting documents and, you know, updating them and creating new versions of them. Imagine if you could instead spend your time on harder problems than those basic ones. Uh, that would be a whole different legal market. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised if you look at uh, a lot of um, software that you have on your phone or on your computer, someplace in the um, help or in the about section, there'll be actually a list of open source licenses. And oh, yeah. the, the majority of software used on a daily basis, you'll see 10, 20, maybe even 50 individual open source projects from everything from the, the font to bug reporting, um, that they can just pull those in major corporations, you know, big name software that you use on a daily basis that you, that you think of as proprietary software. They're all using open source software under the hood because they know that that's not their competitive advantage. Their competitive advantage is not their ability to connect to a database unless their database software. Um, their competitive advantage is in that you, you user experience, you kind of see um, a, above the waterline that, that you really care about and they can focus on making that amazing. Oh, well, on that hopeful note for the practice of law, Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Ben. I really appreciated it. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 